Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Shall we bow our heads? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word which guides us, your word which is truth. We call on you, O Lord, to teach us this morning uh, from your word to open our hearts to uh, its, the depths of its truths, that, Lord, you would also work in terms of our, our wills, Lord, that not only would we be hearers of the word, but that we'd be transformed into doers uh, by your grace. So to these ends, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. As we've been studying through Matthew's Gospel, uh, we see that in the opening verses of chapter 19 that Jesus has uh, finished his talks on uh, reconciliation and forgiveness, and now he's making his way, uh, his journey down into Judea, which he is he's basically headed for Jerusalem at this point. And it appears that uh, Jesus crosses the Jordan River and travels south on the eastern side of the river if there's a map in the back of some of your Bibles or if you've ever seen a, a map of the Holy Land, you'll know that Judea is in the southern portion of the kingdom and then Samaria is kind of in the center of the kingdom and then Galilee is up to the north. And all of these regions are on the western side of the Jordan River. And it was uh, a popular route. If you, were in, if you were an Orthodox Jew and you were in Judea, a popular way to go up into Galilee would be to cross the Jordan River, go up the eastern side, and then cross the river again uh, into Galilee. And this is an important point in uh, John chapter 4 when we, uh, when we read about the, uh, uh, the story of the Samaritan uh, at, the, at the well where Jesus meets. Uh, in, in that particular journey, Jesus went right through Samaria, which is something that the Orthodox Jews wouldn't do. They considered Samaria unclean and the whole place defiled. And Jesus really defies that as he, as he goes right through, the, uh, right through the area. But it appears that on this southern trip, uh, he does cross the Jordan River and come down the eastern side. And I say that because in verse 1, we're told that he entered the region beyond the Jordan. 
Uh, that is across the, the river. Verse 2 tells us that large crowds followed him and that he healed them there. Uh, we've become quite accustomed to this as Jesus travels. It's uh, very often there are large crowds. They hear of his coming. Uh, they flock to him, undoubtedly uh, bringing their sick. And uh, this is taking place once again. And it is within this context that verse 3 tells us that some Pharisees come up to Jesus in order to test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And I think the first thing that we should note here is that Matthew wants us to understand that the Pharisees are, uh, are attempting to, to trap Jesus. They're attempting to uh, test him, if you will. I don't think they're necessarily uh, that worried about uh, learning what Jesus has to say. Uh, they throw this hotbed question uh, at Jesus. And just like our own day, the, the subject of divorce is a hotbed subject, isn't it? Uh, it's one of those very deeply controversial subjects. Uh, if you're candidating for a church, this probably wouldn't be the sermon you'd want to preach. Um, uh, very unlikely. Leave this one alone. Uh, preach something else. This is a hotbed topic, and in Jesus' day, uh, this was certainly the case uh, in the first century. Now, although these Pharisees are not interested necessarily in learning what Jesus has to say, uh, nevertheless, Jesus does respond to them. And uh, for those who are interested in what Jesus has to say, there are a lot of things to be gained here, a lot of principles concerning the subject of marriage and concerning the subject of divorce. Uh, we learn both by the questions that the Pharisees ask and we learn by the response that Jesus uh, gives. Now, uh, my purpose this morning really is to try to explain uh, these verses as best as I'm able. Verses really 1 through 9 is all we're going to get to this morning. Uh, and from there, as we go along, uh, we're going to stumble upon these uh, principles of marriage and principles of divorce. I think that it's helpful to note that our text can kind of be broken down into a couple of sections. I think that if you think it through, we can see that there are two questions being asked here uh, by the Pharisees. There are two responses given to those questions by Jesus. And uh, this is followed in verse 10 by a statement that is made by the disciples and a third response uh, from Jesus of that statement. When we have that construction in our minds, I think it helps us to understand uh, what is going on. So uh, let's use the outline that naturally flows from the passage. Let's start with the questions, the first question in verse 3 that the Pharisees asked Jesus in order to test him. They say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, they're making reference here to Deuteronomy 24, uh, verses 1 through 4. It's a little bit of a lengthy text. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. Do your best to follow. I, I usually don't like to read quotes this long because when you're sitting there, it's hard to follow them. Uh, but do your best. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4 reads this way. Uh, Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, 
and the latter man hates her and writes her a divorce and puts it in her hand or sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, what is being said here? In essence, what is Moses is saying is that if a man finds some indecency in his wife, to the degree that he is purposed now and his mind is made up to give her a certificate of divorce, then he needs to understand that if once he is divorced, uh, if she marries another person, then he, he cannot uh, ever remarry her, even in cases where she is divorced from the second person or in cases of the second husband, even uh, her being separated by death uh, from the husband. That's in essence what is being said here. But the rabbis were making this verse to say something like this. If a man finds some indecency in his wife, then Moses commands him uh, to divorce her. Now, we know that because if you look at Matthew 19 and verse 7, what does it say? This is the second question that the Pharisees asked. Notice they say, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, it's hard to follow when someone's reading a passage that lengthy. It's hard to follow in your mind. Uh, but I invite you this afternoon to take a look at Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. And in that passage, nowhere do we find Moses commanding anyone uh, to divorce their spouse. Uh, in fact, if we, uh, if we study Deuteronomy 24 in the context, in the background of Deuteronomy 24, what we discover is that what Moses is actually trying to do is he's trying to restrain many of the frivolous divorces that are already taking place. Now, the, by the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, there were basically two schools of thought on this subject, primarily on Deuteronomy 24. There was one leading rabbi uh, who, whose school basically said, listen, if a man finds something indecent in his wife, uh, he can divorce her. Uh, he is commanded to divorce her. Uh, that school of thought doesn't attempt to try to define what this something indecent is, uh, just merely states it as I put it, basically. Uh, there's an opposing, there was an opposing school of thought that uh, went this way, that if a man finds something indecent uh, in his wife, then uh, he can divorce her, and that something indecent could be practically anything. Uh, if um, a man comes home and discovers that his dinner is burnt. For instance, this rabbi went as far as to say if his dinner is burnt, uh, he may give her a certificate of divorce. Uh, another rabbi taught that uh, if a man finds a, a, a woman that's prettier, more attractive than his wife, he can put her away and divorce her and marry the woman that's more pretty. Honestly, you're looking at me. I'm not making this up. I recommend you do a little research. You'll quickly see. I'm, I'm not making this up. This is the background behind what's going on here, and we can see that the emphasis is on something indecent, some indecency. Now, scholars have tried to determine what is meant by this phrase, some indecency, and uh, the fact is that the phrase is really vague. Uh, a lot of ink has been spilled in trying to... Uh, trying to uh, uh, 
define uh, what this indecency is, but it just, the text just doesn't tell us. And as one author uh, put it, that's, that's really the point. Um, it's meant to be vague because the passage really isn't about the indecency. Now, that's not the point of the passage at all. The point of the passage is restraining uh, frivolous divorce. If we might uh, take a, an imaginary couple, uh, Ralph and Ellen, basically what Moses is saying through Deuteronomy 24 is he's saying, okay, Ralph, I understand you've got your mind made up that you're going to give Ellen a certificate of divorce, but I want you to understand something, Ralph, that if you do this and Ellen remarries, don't be interfering and busting up that, that marriage because once she marries another person, Ralph, you're no longer going to be permitted to take her back. I think that's the meaning of the passage, especially in the context of all of these frivolous divorces taking place. We can imagine somebody uh, uh, simply losing their cool, getting out a piece of paper and beginning to scratch down a, a, a certificate of divorce and saying, here, take it on your way. What's Moses trying to do? He always, he's trying to restrain this thing. Now, notice in verse 4 how Jesus responds. He doesn't go to Deuteronomy 24, does he? He goes to Genesis 2. Some of you will recognize uh, his answer. He says, haven't you not read? I, I, I always love it when Jesus says stuff like that. Haven't you not read? What is Jesus really saying there? He says, listen, fellas, don't you read your Bibles? And you only got to read the, the second chapter of the Bible to get this. Um, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and they shall become one flesh. Now, what the Pharisees were hoping to do was pin Jesus down to one side or the other. Because if he could pin, if, I don't think they really care which side they pin him down to. If they can pin him down to the conservative side, if you will, then uh, Jesus is going to alienate himself from all of those that are on the liberal side. This is a hot button, a hot button issue here. Uh, people have really, uh, I mean, this will get under people's skin. If, if they can nail Jesus down to the liberal view, then they're going uh, to ostracize him from uh, those of the conservative side. They're trying to weaken his, his uh, constituency, if you will. They're trying to trap him. Uh, but Jesus doesn't take either side, does he? Uh, he doesn't take either side. He appeals to the creation account, and here we have one important principle of marriage, that marriage is not a human institution. You know, it's simply not a human institution. It's, it's a God-made institution. And it, as God creates Adam, the first man, you know, there's this playful engagement in the garden. And I really think it, it was a very playful engagement where God himself is with Adam. And he's saying, okay, Adam, I want you to name all of these creatures. I want you to name them all. You know, you can almost envision God putting his hands over Adam's eyes and saying, okay, Adam, all right, here's another one. All right, you can look now. What do you want to name this one? And down they go. Well, I think I'll name this one a tiger. I think I'll name this one an elephant. I think I'll name this one a, a rhinoceros. How long this, this went in the garden between God and man, it must have went on for quite a while. Uh, because we're told that God, uh, we're told that Adam found no suitable helpmate, no suitable uh, companion, if you will, uh, through this exercise. So God causes Adam to 
go into a deep sleep, he removes one of his ribs and he creates the first woman, doesn't he? And then he presents her to Adam. And then Adam bursts forth with those famous words. He says, this is now at last. That's why I think it went on for a while. He says, now this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. And God officiates the first marriage. He ordains it himself. Uh, there probably wasn't a very large, there couldn't have been a very large groom party or bridal party, and I don't think they uh, worried about dresses or any of that kind of stuff, but it had to have been uh, an amazing wedding, hadn't it? Must have been amazing. Jesus is going back to the creation account. Um, God ordained and instituted uh, marriage for the welfare of humanity. And Jesus continues the answer to the Pharisees in verse 6, if you look there. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then the Pharisees respond with the second question in verse 7. They said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now we've already looked at the error of this question. There's an error in the question itself, isn't there? Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, Moses didn't. There's a problem with the question. Uh, we've already looked at the error of the question. Moses is not commanding divorce. He's trying to regulate and control frivolous divorce. And then notice how Jesus answers. Jesus says in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning it was not so. Now notice, Jesus changes the verb in his in his response. The Pharisees use the word command. Jesus uses the word allowed. He uses the word allowed. Moses never commanded anyone to divorce. There, there are no commands in the Bible to divorce. Uh, there's no command. But then in verse 9, Jesus continues with what has come to be called the exception clause. In verse 9, he says, I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, uh, this is an area where there's a lot of diversity in the church. There's, um, uh, the church is uh, deeply divided uh, on this particular verse. There are some who say that no divorce is allowable whatsoever. Uh, there are some who say that no remarriage is allowable or that all remarriage would be sinful. There are some that teach that, uh, that what's in view here is not marriage at all, but it's engagement. And uh, the, the literature on these positions is vast. Uh, uh, folks defend these views, and they, they do so. These, these, some of these views are very deep and personal. This is why the Pharisees, I mean, uh, the Pharisees are full aware of that. They're trying to trap Jesus, and they throw a real hot bedded uh, question in, in the mix. Sometimes people will do that today uh, when there's a speaker out, and he is speaking on a subject that someone don't like. This is a form that folks can heckle the speaker by throwing one of these, lobbing one of these kinds of questions up in the Q&A uh, uh, time. I remember uh, hearing R.C. Sproul speak in Pittsburgh about 10 years ago or better, and uh, one of these kinds of questions were sailed up to the front in the Q&A 
Uh, in fact, after the question was voiced, some of the people in the crowd kind of booed the question uh, because there were a lot of people who were aware that what was going on was like, whoa. It wasn't even, it was off topic and it was, it, it was just like, um, whoever asked the question probably knew how Sproul was going to come down on the question. And uh, it's an uh, attempt to be divisive. Uh, this is a hotbed issue, just like that. And uh, because it's such a hotbed issue, and because these positions are so deeply held, uh, a lot of this has culminated into a situation where oftentimes uh, the church can be a very brutal place uh, for those who are affected by divorce. It can be an absolutely brutal place for those who are affected by divorce. Uh, so, um, one thing we, we always have to keep in mind is that uh, marriage issues are extremely complex. There are no two uh, situations that are the same. And implementing and applying the relevant biblical text to marriage problems actually uh, requires great wisdom, uh, wisdom that we often lack. And uh, that doesn't help the situation at all. Now, what I want to do this morning with our remaining time is make a few comments about verse 9. Uh, I, I'm not trying to, to offer the last word here. I, I just simply want to put a first layer of paint on, if you will. The first layer of paint. The first thing that we can see from verse 9 here is that uh, it not only concerns divorce, uh, Jesus' words not only concern divorce, but they also concern remarriage. Because I say this because however we come down on divorce, whatever our position is on divorce, it's going to affect our position on remarriage. Uh, the second thing that I want to point out is that the context of this passage is not engagement. Uh, there are many who will say, okay, what's going on here is engagement. And they say that because Jesus uses the words sexual immorality instead of the word for adultery. Uh, the word for sexual, uh, you know, sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, and you'll recognize that. That's the word that we get pornography from. Uh, scholars are divided over what the precise meaning of pornea was in Jesus' time, uh, but uh, sexual immorality is a, is a great way to translate the word pornea. That's, a, that's an excellent translation of that term. Uh, but what I want to make clear here is uh, uh, Jesus is talking about, about marriage, divorce of married couples, uh, not necessarily divorce of engaged couples. In ancient times, the engagement was as binding as, uh, as a marriage in many ways. Uh, if you recall the, uh, the birth narrative of Jesus when Joseph discovers that uh, Mary is pregnant, he resolved in himself to divorce her quietly, didn't he? Uh, divorce proceedings were required to break off those engagements. They're, they were quite different than our engagement. Um, so, um, but I, I would submit to you that what's in view here in Matthew 19 are married couples involved in frivolous divorce. And that is also the background of the situation. Uh, the rabbinical schools that I've mentioned that taught uh, that a, 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 a man can divorce his wife for really any cause whatsoever, or a man can divorce his wife for some indecency that he finds in her. Uh, what's in view there are married couples, couples who 
are well past the engagement process, that are indeed uh, married. The third thing that, uh, that Jesus does is indeed he offers an exception. He says whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Now, um, uh, um, Jesus is not commanding anyone to divorce here, is he? There's no command. But what we have to understand is that he is allowing it. He is allowing it in cases of sexual immorality. He doesn't use the word adultery. And I think the most persuasive argument that I have read or heard in view of why uh, Jesus would use pornea, or why he would use sexual immorality instead of uh, adultery, is that sexual immorality widens the scope a little bit. It widens the scope. Uh, sometimes when couples are having problems, there are, are situations in the marriage where sexual immorality uh, has taken place for sure. Uh, but would, we go, would, would, would the world go as far to say that adultery took place? Let me give you one example. Is, uh, addiction to pornography would be an example of this. Uh, pornography addiction is rampant right now. Absolutely rampant. Is that a breach in the marriage covenant? Absolutely it is. What does Jesus tell us? He tells us that even if a person looks at another person with a lustful intent, what has he or she done in their heart? They've committed adultery in their heart. So that would be one example. We could, we could think of many other examples here, but I think what's going on, what Jesus is doing, is he's widening the scope. Um, he's widening the scope a little bit. Now, uh, though God hates divorce, he does permit it in the case of sexual immorality. And I, I should mention that there's another exception that's given, and we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it involves desertion. Some of you are familiar with that text in 1 Corinthians 7. Basically what Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, okay, if, if a married couple, an unbelieving married couple, if the husband comes to saving faith in Christ while the wife remains an unbeliever, then that believing husband is not to divorce the wife if she is willing to live with him. And then the opposite is said. If the, uh, if the unbelieving uh, wife becomes a believer and her husband does not, she is not to divorce him unless, uh, unless he, because of her faith, refu you know, doesn't desire to continue on. In the event that one spouse says, listen, I just don't want to continue on like this, then the Apostle Paul says that uh, she or he is no longer bound. They're no longer bound. And, and it's for these reasons that uh, I take the position, I'll let you know where my position is on this issue, I take the historical Protestant position that while divorce should be avoided wherever possible, uh, there are two exceptions, and that is sexual immorality and desertion. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith in uh, chapter 24 and verse 6 reads, Nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church where civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. 
Uh, this is a historic Protestant uh, position. And the confession goes on to say that the couple is not to be left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. In other words, they're not to decide this without the counsel uh, of uh, uh, godly elders, godly pastor. They're not to simply do this and make these decisions on their own. Um, so uh, uh, we're to seek the counsel of elders. We're to seek the counsel uh, of a pastor. This actually sometimes is where the problem actually continues, festers, and becomes much worse. Unfortunately, a lot of elders and a lot of pastors aren't conversant on these texts. And what happens then? What happens when uh, a, a woman uh, has put up with her husband running around on, on her for many years and finally says, I've had enough? And she goes to, in a conservative church, she goes to the elders who are all men, and she says to them, listen, you know, Ernie's, Ernie's been running around for years and I've had enough. Too often is the case before the details are even heard. Too often is the case where she says, well, you know, uh, you, you, you know you, divorce is an option, but, you know, you should take the higher ground. Uh, oftentimes that's the case. Oftentimes that's what happens. Uh, it, it, ladies, if, I think you'll agree with me. If you think that's what the leadership is about in a given church, you're probably not even going to come to the elders with your problem. You're probably not even going to come forward. But you're going to have to go to somebody, and who are you going to go to? See, that's the problem. The church can be a brutal place over these issues. And we've got to understand that this is a burden that the leadership of a church has to have. We have to know these texts. We have to understand these texts. I take the position that uh, she probably should divorce him if he's been running around on her for years. Uh, if she has given him repeated uh, warnings and, and said, listen, you know, I, I, I finally had enough of this. Uh, why should she put up with that? when the scriptures are very clear that uh, uh, sexual immorality is grounds for divorce. Now, having said that, um, we should always, always, always do everything we can to save the marriage. But sometimes they can't be saved. That's just the, that's just the way it is. Sometimes they can't be saved. And there are some who say, listen, if... if if she divorces him in this case, then she's not offering forgiveness to him. And there are people who teach that, people who are wiser than I and more godly than I, uh, who teach that, and I respect them. But I would submit to you that she can forgive this man without remaining married to him. She can offer him forgiveness and still go through with the divorce. But see, the reason I'm laboring these points is is because how we believe on this issue is going to determine how we treat people who have been affected by divorce. Is it the unpardonable sin? No. It's a heinous sin. It's a sin against God and it's a sin against the community. But is it unpardonable? No. In fact, as one author put it, he said, 
that in all of the lists of heinous sins that we have in the Bible, lists such as 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 10, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, Revelation 22, 15, uh, divorce is not even mentioned in those lists. It's not. You know, when you're reading through the Bible and all of a sudden you come to a list of all of the bad stuff, you don't find divorce mentioned in those lists. You find sexual immorality in the lists. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. You find idolatry, Galatians 5, verse 20. You find envy, Galatians 5, verse 21. You find slander, Colossians 3, verse 8. But you don't find divorce. I think there's a good, I think in God's wisdom there's good reason for that. All of this bad stuff leads to divorce. One author has put it this way, all, um, all divorce is caused by sin, but not all divorce is sinful. All divorce is caused by sin, but not all divorce is sinful. Um, I just want to conclude with the fact that praise be to God that Jesus and His work on the cross can wash even the filth of divorce away. I am so thankful that that is the case. And uh, we must always be mindful of that. Um, or this church is not simply, it's just not going to be the church that Christ is calling it to be. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your wisdom. We thank you, Lord, for your teaching. And we thank you, O Lord, for the, um, the patience that you have for us, Lord. Uh, we recognize this morning, Lord, that uh, divorce is the result of hard hearts. We recognize that that is the case. We recognize, Lord, that our hearts are hard. And we recognize, O oh Lord, that the salvation we have in Christ Jesus covers this. So, O oh Lord, we, we so thank you that that is the case, uh, that we can be washed clean and we can be made anew. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.